Radio, Episode 2, recorded November 14, 2018. Today, Scott interviews Maurizio Personoto of the Cloud Dancers Aerobatic Team. So, uh, we just got back from Wuhan, China, at the Air Race 1 China Cup race. Uh, the first day when we walked into the hangar, there was a big wooden crate beside our containers with a door open. We looked in the door, and there was this little tiny red jet, single-seater jet, that could have been more than three and a half feet tall. And uh, they wheeled it out, and it was this tiny little BD-5 jet, which is from... Uh, For those who haven't seen a BD-5, you'd recognize them from the James Bond film Octopussy. Uh, James Bond is running from the bad guys and escapes using the smallest jet you've ever seen. Yeah, and uh, so so this jet was being unloaded, and the short little guy with curly hair walks up and sticks out his hand and says, Hi, I'm Maurizio. I'm Maz. And I went, uh, oh, well, I'm Scott. And then he said, I'm the pilot. I thought, man, this guy's nuts. So then we thought, well, it might be a good idea to uh, have a little chat with him and find out his background. He's a young guy and energetic and flies a really cool airplane. I've never actually seen a BD-5 fly before. So here's episode two of Deadstick Radio. Please enjoy. We have, uh, uh-oh. Maurizio Perisonodo. That's actually one of the best pronunciations <laughs> I've heard. You did, right? <laughs> yeah, I've been living out of Italy since I was like 17. So I um, settled with Maz as a name because nobody else can pronounce the, the, the full name. But you did a good job. Yeah, and, yeah. and Ruth, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, and are you, are you guys boyfriend, girlfriend, married? We are actually married. Oh. Double married. Since when? Three uh, years. Three years. Oh, fairly recent. So uh, why don't we start way back a long time ago when you were a kid. So you grew up in Italy, what part? Yeah, north of Italy. Uh, well, actually, I grew up in Sardinia, which is the island left of Italy. It's like the Maldives of Europe, basically. Very nice place. Um, my father was an airline pilot at that time. I had decided that seeing him and his lifestyle that I would not be an airline pilot. I thought it was, like, boring. Um and uh, I wanted actually to be an engineer. I wanted to build aeroplanes. Then, uh, you know, growing up, realized that engineers don't build aeroplanes. Uh, there's actually somebody else that gets all the fun. Engineers sit in the back and design. So I said, uh, screw it. I'm going to build and fly my own aeroplanes. And to do that, you need time, money, and experience. And what job gives you all three? Airline pilots. So uh, first that career eventually. So you, so you finished high school and then what? Did you go to college straight to flight school. Or nope. straight, flight straight school? to flight school. Yeah. Uh, that was in Spain, flight training Europe in uh, Jerez. Uh, it's like in the southwest corner near Gibraltar. Why'd and, you pick uh, that place? Well, it's a, it's, it's a whole long story, obviously, but uh, to, to make it streamlined, uh, my parents actually passed away uh, when I was 16. And um, so, you know, needed to provide for the family, put food on the table, um, went to work for the airline that my father was working for. And... Um, and I told them, you know, I want to be a pilot and all. And they said, well, let's see how you do in the navigation department first. So I started there and I worked pretty hard. And uh, they decided that I was worth a shot. And they said, well, you go off to flight school. Um, you know, we'll, we'll help you along the way. They helped me for a little bit. Then the company closed. So I had to figure it out. But um, the school that they recommended me was, was this particular one in Spain. Turned out to be a great place. The, we had like our own little uh, apartment at the airport. We had a bar with super cheap drinks. We had a swimming pool, barbecues. And then we also did a little bit of study, not too much of it. <laughs> Turned out to be a good school. 
Did you finish everything there? Like your multi yeah, yeah, it was an integrated course. You know, you go from zero to uh, eighty frozen ATPL, which is basically the the frozen ATP that that there's in the United States. But yeah. we got an EASA license, obviously. Right. And um, with that, you know, it was basically the airline ticket. It's what the airlines want to hire second officers. Yeah, but it was a it was a bad time. It was uh, two thousand and nine, and there were no jobs. A lot of airlines had closed in Europe. So there were tons and tons of experienced pilots on the market willing to fly for bread, basically. Um, so there was no chance for somebody with 200 hours. So actually, uh, two years after, um, I got called by uh, Qatar Airways um, to, you know, to got off that position there. And it's quite funny because at that time, obviously, I had to find something else to do in those two years. So... Um, I came up with this idea of taking the train to Czech Republic and other, you know, nearby countries and um, testing, not testing, that's the wrong word, but like buying crappy ultralights um, and then sort of patching them up and flying them back to Italy across the Alps <laughs> and then try and display them somehow and then sell them. And obviously, you know, to display them, you got to do something cool. So I started coming up with these numbers where, you know, you bounce one wheel, then you bounce the other wheel in the wrong way, and then, you know, you do all these little things that, the, what ultralights can do, right? They can't do any real aerobatics or anything. Like sailcloth ultralights? Yeah, like, like literally ones. tube and fabric and whatever else, crossing the Alps, you know, getting in the valleys and <laughs> getting funneled in between the two valleys and the clouds on top and the road on the bottom. And then like in a cartoon, you see the little hole of the <laughs> of the tunnel where the train goes and you're like, oh, I'm going to go in through there. Obviously, that, that never happened, but there were situations in which um, you know, in which you end up in a valley with the clouds coming from the top and you're like, well, it's too tight here to make a turn. So you just find the field, put it down there and wait for the, for the fog to lift. <laughs> yeah, a number of interesting stories. Um, I hope nobody from the from the EASA legislation is going to listen to any of this. <laughs> but anyways, that's, that's water under the bridge. So wait, you got a job with Qatar. Got a job with, with Qatar. 200 hours of real flight training. Correct. And maybe a hundred hours of flying, of demonstrating ultralights. Oh uh, yeah, that I did not tell them that they they would not have seen that in a in a good eye. You're um, an FO on a seven thirty seven. I started as a second officer on a three twenty. Okay. But the story of how I got the job is actually quite funny. Um, I started breaking these ultralights because you know I didn't have any formal training of aerobatics or anything like that. So starting to push the envelope a little bit, I started <laughs> basically breaking them. And I said, it's probably time I get some proper aerobatic training. So I got some training. And uh, one of those nights, I was in the hotel. You know, it was in a different city, so I had to go there. And I had no money. So I, you know, I'd go there by train and walk five miles to the airport or ten miles to the airport every day. And, and, and I was exhausted. I was in this tiny room on top of a restaurant with a noise coming from downstairs, eight o'clock in the night, I was already knackered after a full day of six Gs, right? And um, and then in the middle of the night, the phone rings and I pick it up and I go, I go, yeah, you know, yeah, who is it in Italian? And I, ah, this is Captain from Qatar Airways. And I'm like, all right. Um, with one hand, I was looking for the light switch. Other hand, I was looking for my notes or whatever, you know, like trying to fumble in, in English, which in Italy, we don't really study English that much. So it doesn't really just click. And um, and then, you know, the conversation went on and I woke up the next day and I was like, must have been just a dream, you know? <laughs> so I checked my phone and the call was there, but I had no clue what was said. Totally forgotten everything about it. 
So, you know, weeks passed, months passed. I was like, well, you know, I'm, I must have blown it or whatever. Um, and then after nine months, I get an email. All right, so we um, look forward to seeing you next week <laughs> in Qatar. I'm like, oh, crap, you know, I got to pack everything, <laughs> got to figure everything out. It was, it, was, um, it was pretty hectic, but it worked out. It worked out. So you flew to Qatar with all of your bags packed. Indeed. And you started as a second officer. On the Airbus 320. Yeah, so went through the type rating. So for, for anybody that's not pilot inclined, what's the second officer? So, um, you know, the, the main figure of the airplane is the captain. He's the boss. He's the skipper. All right. Then there's the first officer. That's the guy that sits on the right seat. And, you know, he's, he does the same job. Just if he screws up, it's the captain's fault. And if the captain screws up, it's his own fault. So, And then there's the second officer, which is a guy who's learning how to be a first officer. And that's how they structure it in that airline, basically. So, um, so you fly right seat. You have a, a safety pilot on the jump seat just for the first few sectors. And, um, and then eventually, you know, you, you, you get questioned on every flight. And on theory, you get practical exams. You have to shoot a number of non-precision approaches and visual approaches and things that you don't normally do in an everyday operation. And then uh, when you tick all the boxes, you know, you get your second stripe. Now you're a first officer. Yeah. So how long were you first officer for? And on, was it on a 320? Yeah, I resigned as a first officer uh, in senior. March this year, as a senior first officer, indeed. Um, I've been a first officer for uh, three years. And uh, in, in that part of the world, I have quite a quick circulation of pilots. So after three years, you're a senior, you know. So got promoted to senior first officer, got changed in fleet. They put me on a 350, Airbus 350, which is a wide-body aircraft and it was a it still is actually the, the latest airliner that came out of you know of the production in the world, yeah. and they actually um, decided to put me in the acceptance team, which is it's kind of like the test team of Airbus that does the actual testing. Then once everything is done, um, the the airline that acquires the airplanes sends their own pilots to run through similar tests, and uh, they sent a bunch of captains and few first officers, and they decided to. 72. That was exciting. That was really fun. Uh, very nice to be involved in it and being a test pilot is what I figured I've always wanted to do um, after building airplanes, you know. <laughs> like once I build them, I gotta test them. So um, doing it in the big league, you know, with, with all the professionals was really exciting. So how did, how did you go from Qatar to Santa Paula as a first officer with Qatar Airways? Right. <laughs> um, Qatar was, a, was an interesting place. Um, Kind of a double-edged sword, really. You know, it gave a lot, but it prevented you to do a lot of other things. Um, the airline itself uh, was a serious work environment. I enjoyed the work, I enjoyed the aeroplane, I enjoyed the destination we had, but I saw it as a bit of a dead end. Um, as I said, I didn't really want to be an airline pilot. I just saw it as a means for me to achieve other things, which is build and fly, you know, sport aeroplanes. So. Uh, through the years, you know, they pay you enough money that you can afford to uh, to get your own general aviation going. And we got in a position where it started to pay for itself, and then some. So at that point, and, and also, you know, the whole political situation of that area was not brilliant. So at that point, we said, let's start making a, an escape plan. And um, when the time came, we were ready. So now we have, um, <clears throat> we have our, you know, air show gig going on. Um, were you together at the time you made the decision to move? Like, did yeah. you meet while you were in Qatar? Yeah, yeah, we met together. Uh, Ruth was a flight attendant there. 
and you know I was a uh, first officer when we met yeah yeah and uh, well it's the, it's the actually um, it's pretty usual you know right to get airline pilots uh, dating cabin crew but I think the, <laughs> I think the path we, <laughs> yeah the path we followed was uh, quite special especially considering um, the environment that 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 geographical part of the world promotes which is not one of long-lasting relationships did, did you have a BD-5 at the time, or did that come later? I bought the BD-5, I think it was like two weeks before getting married. <laughs> and I was like, I gotta do this now. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Uh, Ruth, would, you know, she was in the loop and, uh, um, and she approved of it. Um, the story of the BD-5 uh, for us has been interesting. I've always obviously um, looked up to it and thought it was the coolest thing in the sky and dreamt of it, but always thought that it was way out of my league, no chance. And it actually was. Um, until we found this one on Barnstormers, and um, I, just, I had a couple of days off from work, and she was busy flying, and I said, I'll go check it out. So I hopped on a plane, flew to LA. From Qatar? Uh, from Qatar, and um, it's a direct flight, it's 16 hours. It's, it's nice if you do it in business class, not so much in economy. Which we've done, <laughs> which after we started doing this twice a month, every month, but anyways, I digress. Wait, why, why so much? Oh, because because we ended up buying the, the airplane and uh, and ended up modifying it and making it suited to our air show. And while flying Qatar. While flying in Qatar. So basically, I was flying in Qatar Airways. And then as soon as I had a couple of days off, hopping on a plane and going to L.A., Sanapala is this you know little village near L.A. Um, yeah. <laughs> working on the airplane, working on the, on the little jet. And at the same time, we were already running our air show gig in Turkey with a Pitts S2B, uh, which is, you know, you know, it's an aerobatic biplane. And uh, so as soon as I had a couple of days off, I would go to the U.S. to work. And as soon as I had a little more days off, I would go to Turkey to fly. And uh, in the middle, we would cross paths because obviously with different rosters, with um, different schedules, we had to find the time. You almost never see each other. So we almost never saw each other, uh, which was tough. When we did see each other, it was, you know, we were both jet lagged in two different time zones and everything. And, um, <clears throat> but we made it work. We made it work. Uh, we made the, the Turkish gig go uh, with, the, with the air shows over there. We made the US thing go. And once it was time to make an escape plan from Qatar and decide where to go, um, we decided that, that California was probably the best bet. Because of the weather? Um, nah, because we found a house on the airport. <laughs> so you just push your aeroplane out and you go. The, the way we structured it, uh, we, <laughs> we figured out that we could not afford to rent a house, let alone buy it, and a hangar in California. There's just no way we can afford it, especially without you know, leaving the, the, the well-paid job. So we figured, let's get a hangar, and we managed to get a good deal on one, and build an apartment in it. So it's pretty interesting, pretty cool. Wait, you did that in Santa Paula? So you live yeah. at the airport? Correct. Full on time the, now. On the well, I mean, right now we are working on our visa to actually move there and yeah, so you, get you, our business go. But for now, we've been... You can't work there right now. Not right now. Uh, that's why we are here and not there. Yeah. <laughs> um, however, we are in the process of working out the visa. You know, they're making it very difficult nowadays. It's, you can uh, live there, you just can't work there, right? We have the same issue from Canada. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, it's kind of it's kind of old, old funky, but... Uh, uh, we're making it work. So yeah. hopefully 2019 is the year 
for now we're just spending money there not making any but yeah yeah you have to that's like exactly you know we're, that's, yeah we're in the same investment. issue yeah i got lots of canadian friends that do the same thing right so you bought this bd5 was it a j at the time or not it was a j um this company called aviation effects there in california specialized in in exotic airplanes so to speak uh you know high performance turboprops and small jets and uh Quester ventures which has this funky looking egg shaped super fast airplanes and uh, speed mods and whatever else um and they are the ones who built this airplane and they were doing experiments with it you know they were putting two engines in it and setting it up for one thing then another um then when i acquired it it was in a ready to fly state but it was not the way i wanted it so we acquired this thing we took it apart and we started afresh and uh, we did a bunch of modifications quite serious modifications to it like what like what what's not the right way to do it well, I mean, they were doing it right. They were just doing it right for their plan, not for our plan. Yeah, we yeah. wanted to do airshows, so we wanted it lighter. Um, we wanted uh, stronger uh, torque tubes on the uh, aileron flight controls. And uh, we installed, or we had them install spades on it um, to lighten up the um, stick forces at high speed for the roll. So it's different and... torque tubes. So what do you mean? Yeah. Like, so when you move the stick, the aileron, the torque tubes move, but the ailerons don't. Well, what happened is, uh, the way the system works, you have a little side stick. Um, so the movement there are different from the one that you normally have from a little center from a center stick. So um, so actually there's quite a lot of force on a very small uh, joint. And this joint works on a torque tube which goes with a number of pulleys to other torque tubes which go through hinges down the wings to the ailerons which are at the end of the wings. And um, what we figured out is that that um, you know on the ground when we were testing we were getting a certain amount of degrees of deflection. And um, and then once we were going at full speed with the camera, we found out that the, the aileron was moving only half that amount. So that kind of freaked me out because that means the torque tube, which is this tube you know that, that brings the movement around, is twisting in there. And because we have you know about 22 degrees of, of throw each way and we're getting about half of it, it means it's twisting 11 degrees. So it's the equivalent of, you know, you take a carrot, for example, and try and twist it. It's not going to twist. It's going to snap. And I was not very comfortable with that. You know, it's, it's been designed like that. It's been going like that. People much smarter than me have, <laughs> have used it and abused it and got away with it. But I was just not comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. So we got rid of that and we um, made some eighth of an inch thick um, tubes out of carbon fiber which were not so expensive and a hard work to make, but turned out beautiful. And uh, and now, now they were, you know, they were really solid, <laughs> definitely. But they were so solid that we couldn't push, I couldn't push the stick hard enough to make it go the way it was supposed to go. To make full deflection. To get full deflection at 250 knots to full speed. It was just too hard to fight against the air. So we engineered it together with the guys of Aviation FX who are the gurus of this kind of stuff. Uh, we engineered these uh, spades, and this is the only BD-5 in the world, as far as our research goes, uh, with spades on ailerons, and it does make it so much better. Oh my god. Now suddenly, the ailerons and the elevators were reasonably balanced at high speed, because the original design uses some uh, you know, forward-facing horns at the end of the aileron with the ballast, which provide static balancing, you know, the center of gravity is in the right place, but no dynamic balancing, so you're fighting the air all the time. The elevator, on the other hand, has a massive part in front of the hinge. So on the other hand, that is helping you. 
it, ma- it makes it lighter. So at high speed, you have a super light elevator. So it gets it's pitchy. It's super pitchy and very, very heavy ailerons, which, by the way, also move half the deflection in the normal setup. So you get like, it steers like a truck, but it pitches like a motocross or a dirt bike, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, um, and by installing this space and doing these mods, we, you know, kind of brought it all together. Now it's all touchy, <laughs> which I like. It's, it's the way I like to fly. You know, coming from the pit experience, I like a touchy airplane that if, if something goes wrong, it's my fault, not the airplane's fault. Is the, so what engine do you have in it? It's a TJ100 made by PBS. It's uh, made in Czech Republic. It's an actual jet made for pushing airplanes or drones or whatever. It's not a converted APU or anything. Is that is that the right engine for it? Are there other options? Uh, there are the um, the BD5 originally was built was meant to be built with a, a piston engine with a prop, like a two-stroke um, Kawasaki or something. Yeah, right? there were a bunch of options, and the story is very long. Um, but um, um, there were a number of engine options, and they put all sorts of engines in there. They put Volkswagen like chopped car engines and Wankel engines and all sorts of weird stuff. Um, eventually they put a jet in it and the only thing available at that time was a TRS-18 converted APU engine which were great and that's what they were flying the big guys were flying in the airships back in the 70s and 80s what was that about 10 years ago they had that engine or are you talking oh no like that was like at least 20 yeah back in the 80s yeah. like 20 to 30 years ago mm-hmm. um, and those guys were really flying the hell out of the plane it was really impressive there's videos on YouTube and um, and they were pushing the airplane way beyond its limit they knew what they were doing, so you know they were all test pilots, like real test pilots. Yeah. Um, but uh, but then uh, a number of things happened, and this PBS company produced this little jet. Um, other pilots uh, installed this jet on other airplanes, and you know streamlined installation. And then we and we we came into this game at a time where the engine was tested enough that it was safer than the TRS-18, um, but still untested enough. For it to be you know a place where you can do some work so we got this engine and we figured out the installation and uh, it's a good jet it's a centrifugal compressor at the front it's um it's got a, a, a segmented combustion chamber um, and then it has a one stage turbine and the rest just shoots out the back supersonic so uh, and the bd5 as opposed to some other airplanes that install this engine which have it on a pylon the bd5 has it in the middle of the fuselage right behind the pilot's head <laughs> which is interesting, uh, but then it has a nice long thrust tube uh, where the air is rushing out of it supersonic. So the sound that it makes is, is really powerful. And it kind of resonates. Really cool. I'm sorry. It resonates, kind of. It does. Of it does. Uh, it resonate would mean that it vibrates and and that could cause issues. It does that only at a certain certain specific RPM, which you can't hold even if you wanted to. You're always transiting through it, so it's oh. not an issue. However. The, the, it, it does amplify it. It's like a tuned exhaust. It does amplify the sound and give it a more guttural uh, feel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. How does it mount into the airplane? So I know it goes on the top of the fuselage, right? Correct. In line yeah. with the kind of where the, the propeller shaft used to be? Exactly. Does it's, it bolt in? Do you have to make your own brackets? How does that work? Well, the, the engine is, is behind my head. It connects uh, my head to the tailpipe and it's right there close to me. Um, it's attached to the airplane with three bolts. That's it. What size? Oh, they are like... Um, like three sixteenths, quarter inch? Yeah, a little more than a quarter inch. That's it, it's just like an eight millimeter. That's it. And uh, so we had to make brackets for it uh, on the side, and we, we uh, attached it to um, the longer ones, so to speak, that run through the, uh, along the fuselage from the cockpit to the tail. And then on top, there is one more bolt, and that's an actually a, 
uh, five millimeters, so it's less than a quarter inch, uh, that that holds it on the top, and that that's all there is to it. The engine makes virtually no vibration, so you don't have that issue. You don't need shocks or rubber blocks or anything like that. Um, it just pushes in one direction. There's no gyroscopic forces. There are some, but you know, nothing significant. The rotor is so tiny, and it's not a you know it's not an extreme airplane. It still flies like a jet. You know, it's, it still needs to go forward to be Th able to. Does do it have built-in fuel pumps and oil pumps? Uh, and stuff? Yeah, the engine has its own fuel pump, and that's basically what controls the thrust. Uh, it has a FADEC, which is a full authority digital engine control computer, which takes care of the engine. Uh, all you tell him is, I want you to run, and I want this much RPM, and it figures the rest. Uh, it's, it has built-in protections for overspeed and um, overtemp and things like that, um, and and they work. We've tested them, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> extensively, and uh, <clears throat> and and that's it. It's it's a very simple system. It's got a, its own little oil sump, as opposed to the TRS-18, which is the previous engine which we were talking about before, which came as a outfitted APU. So now suddenly you have to have a number of controls to handle it and have a separate fuel pump and. A bunch of other systems which, oil tank, which come separately exactly so it becomes a complex installation so from a thrust perspective what's the original engine oh the original engine pushes a little more but it weighs a lot more um so our engine weighs 22 kilos and pushes 110 so that's like that's like less than 50 pounds 100 kilos of thrust kilograms yeah so that's like 50 pounds of weight for the engine for 270 280 pounds of thrust which is an exceptional ratio for for the size that it is and it burns uh, between 20 and 45 gallons an hour, depending on thrust and density. Uh, so the, uh, how big are, your, are your, your tanks in that airplane? We've got uh, 10 gallons each side and 7 gallons in the fuselage. Uh, each side, I mean in each wing, and then, and then 7 gallons in the fuselage. Uh, you can get more fuel in there. There's plenty of space with the, with the installation that we used. There's plenty of space. You could stuff another 25 gallons in that plane. In the wings? In the wings and in the fuselage. If you wanted to, but our plane is designed for airshows. I, I never fly full tanks. I only fly around with the seven gallons in the center tank. That's my reserve, and it's always there, plus four gallons each side. And that's good for a 15 minutes airshow. Oh, man. Let's talk about the uh, FADEC for a bit. Right. So you were talking to me earlier today <coughs> about you learning how the system works. Yeah. And having to use a translated manual and so on. Yeah. Can you tell us that story? So... Um, in the beginning of the uh, of our experience with the PBS, uh, like I said, the the engine was already being used in aeroplanes, but it was at a preliminary stage um, of it. So the manuals um, were Google translated from Czech, uh, and and that made it quite interesting to understand. Plus, we were you know we were dealing with a number of other things at the same time, so we've also made some mistakes ourselves. Uh, the engine itself and the fact that they have built-in protections. For like I said, over temp and over RPM and other uh, parameters, and um, and if any of these is exceeded, the FADEC will say, "Well, I'm shutting down." This shuts down the engine to protect it. Now, this is not what you want in certain <laughs> at certain times, like right after takeoff or in the middle of low-level aerobatics or things like that. Um, so the first thing that you can do is keep obviously an eye on the instrument and and don't let the protections kick in. Or the second thing, or and the second thing you can do is there's a button which disables these protections. It tells the FADEC, hey, I don't care if I'm on fire, I don't care if there's no oil, I don't care. Run make it. this engine run. Do what it takes to make it run. And um, and now you know I 
push that button and I disable those protections um, at critical stages of flight, right after takeoff, for example, during this air show, this runway that we're going to fly from doesn't seem to have any place to land at the end of one of the runways. So in that case, I'm definitely going to have that button on. So even if something breaks, I should hopefully have enough energy to get high enough to make a crazy turn and go back um, without having to put it in the river or something. But so where, where did you do your flight testing for this then to figure out the FedEx system? So um, the uh, the airplane was built in Santa Pala, which is uh, an airport uh, northwest of LA with a small runway. Uh, it's a 2,400 foot runway. And surrounded by houses. It's got houses on one side, the mountains on the other, and trees at both ends. It's not the easiest place to fly from, so we said for the initial testing, let's not do it here. Let's do it in Camarillo, which is, you know, runway next door, it's a 15-minute drive away, nice long runway, it's controlled, which is not the best thing from some standpoint, but so it's okay when you're flight testing, uh, and so on. The problem was, how do we take the airplane from here to there? Because we can't fly there, obviously, you know, that's the whole point of what we're doing, and uh, we don't have a trailer for it, so what's the plan? So we went to U-Haul, which is the local rental company that rents trucks and trailers. And we asked, do you have a trailer for rent? And they said, well, all we have is a van. So we rented the van, $20 van, and we <laughs> drove it back to the airport and lifted the plane and stuffed it in the back of a van and tied it down with a tail sticking out the back doors and put some tape to hold the doors so they don't flap in the wind and <laughs> drove this crazy thing to Camarillo <laughs> with, uh, with about like four feet of airplane sticking out the back of the van. That was hilarious. And then it was even funnier when we got there and we went to the local FBO and said, okay, so as we said, we are here, uh, we need some fuel. And she's like, okay, where's the airplane? I said, well, the airplane is, is out on the street. Can you please open the gate? We'll, <laughs> we'll roll it in. And, uh, and then we rolled in with the van and offloaded the plane. It was ridiculous, but it worked. It worked. So you, you tested at Camarillo. How many times did the FADEC kick in and kill the engine on you? Um, in the beginning, it was fine because we did the initial testing there. Then we moved to uh, Santa Paula um, and we started the actual testing and envelope expanding and, and maneuver training and all these things and actually pushing the limits of the FADEC to make sure it's actually doing its job. Um, it worked out to a total of 13 flameouts before we had it completely figured out, three of which were all the way down. What was the first one? Oh, uh, <laughs> the first one was... Uh, the first one was actually related to these uh, protections which I was talking about, which we didn't completely understand. Um, it's called um, push to disconnect. or pro No, it's called PDB, protection disabled button. So if you press the button, the light goes on, it means the protections are disabled. It's counterintuitive, right? So the way we thought it worked is if the light is on, the protections are on, the light is off, protections are off. It was the other way around. So we were climbing away, you know, and starting pushing the, 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 the limit up. of this engine uh, and it just went quiet, you know. It restarted, but it took us a while to figure out what the problem was because we started taking the system apart and putting it back together uh, thinking it was something else. Turned out it was just a stupid button, it was in the wrong place. But we figured that. And then, then the next uh, one? Then we had issues with the... Oh, that... that Took a number of <laughs> of, uh, of flameouts before we eventually figured it out. Then we had issues with the fuel system. Uh, turned out some debris got stuck in the filter, and we didn't realize because it was just funneled in. 
um, and then one of the connectors, one of the flares was slightly cracked, so the engine was sucking in air, and all you need in a jet, it's not like a piston engine where the inertia keeps it going. In a jet, you get a tiny bubble of air, the flame goes off, you're done. So you gotta restart it. And, uh, and again, it took us a while to figure it out. Um, sometimes it restarted, sometimes it didn't. Then we had issues. So, wait, with, wait, uh, it did not restart. So then, what happens? Well, then you glide. <laughs> You're in a in a very fast and expensive glider. Um, so you had a crack fitting where over Santa Paula or over Camarillo? Once, once each, <laughs> just to just to be sure. <laughs> so we actually glided down into Santa Paula once too. In the twenty four hundred um, feet. Yeah, with the trees. Yeah. And the houses. I was so glad I was wearing the brown flight suit that day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked out. Um, then we had uh, some issues to figure out with the landing gear. This airplane has a, three world records to it. One of which is the fastest acting landing gear, retractable landing gear in the world. It takes half a second to get in or out. It's just a lever. It acts on some cables and springs, and it it, poof, poof, it puts it in and out in the blink of an eye. Um, the problem was on some of these takeoffs, we were just doing touch and goes. It was windy, crap went in, and gear got stuck up. Couldn't get it out, so we had to belly the thing. And at that time, I was tired, and I didn't think straight, and we tried to get it out, wouldn't get out, and I said, let's just belly the damn thing, and we put it down. No damage, just scraped the flaps at the bottom of the fuselage. Um, you know, like, a week later, we were flying again. You put, is there grass at Santa Paula? Where there is grass. Uh, it's Santa Paula. There is grass, and there is uh, tarmac, too. The, the, the runway is tarmac. Um, this aeroplane, is, it's actually, with any aeroplane, it's much better to belly on a tarmac surface than a grass surface. People think that, you know, turf or grass is soft and that's better. In a crash landing, it's all about deceleration rate. It doesn't matter what you're crashing into. It's all about how slowly you slow down. So, you know, if you land on something nice and smooth like a runway, it, you slide for a longer distance than if you land in something soft like sand or dirt or grass. So it's always the best choice, no matter what. Um, and so, yeah, we just belly it on the runway. And within, within five minutes, ten guys showed up. We picked up the airplane, moved it to the side of the runway, eventually got the gear out and pushed it back to the hangar. Well, what was sticking in it? Oh, some, some debris, some FOD got stuck in there and uh, in the linkages and prevented it from moving properly. I could have done more to get it out. Um, I had done like six flights that day, which is bad on me. I was exhausted. If sun was setting, I didn't want to stay orbiting over the airport. So it was a, you know, in aviation, like in most things, it's not one thing that gets screwed up. It's always 50 things. Yeah. Right? And The Swiss cheese model. The Swiss cheese model, right? I mean, you have, uh, you have these layers of Swiss cheese, and if you can't draw an arrow that goes through all the holes, you have an issue. So you're hoping that at least one Swiss cheese is oriented in a way that blocks it uh, with the holes in a different place. Well... That was not the case that day, and we just bellied the damn plane. But it got repaired, you know. It was a one-week or, yeah, one-week ordeal. Replace a couple panels and you're done? No, just the tip of the flaps got scraped, so we just made a composite patch there. Uh, it's actually stronger <laughs> than it was before. And um, uh, then we made a composite patch for the belly of the airplane, which got high sold in place. And then, just so that we can say we learned our lesson, we fabricated the wood skids and uh, cover them in composite and glue those to the bottom of the airplane. So if it should ever happen again, something like that, we don't have to touch the flaps. Yeah, you'll just <laughs> get the skids. The we just change the skids, yeah. 
So that's uh, a nice a nice uh, modification to the design. So you got all mm-hmm. your, your dead sticks worked out. Yeah. And your engine issues and your structural issues and your ailerons. Everything got figured out little by little. We expanded the envelope. We brought it past VNE. We brought it below stall. Against everybody's advice, we did a, a spin testing um, and figured out how to get out from the spin. Uh, how to, how which, to go. Which this aeroplane is different from any other aeroplane I've flown, at least. Um, because the rudder is tiny and it's at the top of the fuselage. So when you are in a stall or in a spin, there is zero airflow going on there. So it's like not having it. And the first thing they teach you when you are flying uh, is if you ever feel that you are in something that looks like a spin, figure out which way it is, opposite rudder, center the ailerons, and release the pressure on the stick. Or just let it go altogether. Well, here you can do whatever you want with the rudder. You can pedal that thing all day. It's not going to change anything. So you have to recover a spin with the ailerons, which is the opposite of what they teach you in school, in flight school. Uh, the, the technique I figured out to get out of it is to use ailerons against the spin, which is the worst thing you can normally do, because that stalls the, spin, the, the, the inboard wing even more. When it does that, it dips that wing. At that point, the nose comes down. That's when you have to go ailerons into the spin, and whack the stick forward really fast. If you do it slowly, it speeds up. It spins faster because it becomes, it's so short and spins so fast that it becomes like a gyro itself. And and because of the precession forces, it speeds up. You, you figure this out mid-spin. Dude, no, not mid-spin. It took me a number of turns to, to eventually uh, to eventually figure it out. The thing is that time, that, you know, it was flight testing, right? I mean, that's the whole point of it. Yeah. And everybody was like, oh, don't spin that thing. You know, you're going to get in trouble and this and that. And I said, I want to fly low-level air shows with this thing. I don't want to find out what it does the day that, I'm, that I screw up. At 600 feet. Correct. I want to know what it does. And now that I do know what it does, I keep five knots of, <laughs> of margin and, and, you know, 100 feet more. Because you really don't want to get anywhere close. The other thing I learned is, um, is you know, how to harmonize the controls in such situations because there are times when you know you, you are low energy and you gotta turn this airplane around and you gotta do something about it yeah, for example close to it. yeah for example with the weather that we have um, going on for this particular air show that we are expecting to do I will probably not be able to do my normal routine because that takes more space and if I go that far the crowd simply won't see me for, for everyone wondering we're in Wuhan China right now dealing with very low ceilings and very bad visibility yeah, the, the, the visibility is horrible, the sky is white, so normally what saves me is the fact that the aeroplane is red, it's bright red, and it has a white contrail of smoke. Now, the background is going to be white, so the smoke won't be visible, and uh, the, 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 the fog will attenuate the sound of the engine, so it will be even harder to see which is where it's coming from to find in the sky. The only thing that saves me is that the aeroplane is red, but if I do these maneuvers, I'll be very far. So I will have to reduce my speeds and tighten my turns to compress the, the, the um, aerobatic box that I normally work in to stay inside of the clouds. And that's one of those situations where it's paramount to know what the aeroplane does and how it behaves at low speed. Because at that point, I will have no altitude to play with uh, if something should go wrong and barely enough energy to do what I'm supposed to do. And, you know, that's that's what we paid for. That's why, we, that's why we're airshow pilots and not... Uh, Weekenders, right? But it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be interesting. If we've practiced it many times, we know what we're doing. It'll, it'll be fun. I'm hoping it clears up tomorrow. I sure do. I mean, it would be a much better show if it is clear, obviously. How did you guys get into this? We just came up with the idea that nobody's doing it right now. 
It's pretty cool. Yeah, I want to talk to, basically our idea is, is effectively talk to really interesting people like yourself. Right, thank you. And, <laughs> uh, and, and figure out how you kind of got there and how, and how we can inspire other people who are interested in getting into aviation. Uh, it it, it all comes to being in the right place at the right time and and having and being brave to push that switch when that time comes. Yes. Yeah, because the opportunities do show up, uh, even if you don't see them. At that, I mean, the the skill is to see them when they show up, and then to act upon it. Um. So so that's why we become show pilots. I mean, that's what it differentiates it because a competition pilot, as much as potentially a race pilot. Um, as a, as a clear target objective in front of them. The objective is get to that line before everybody else or, you know, fly that maneuver better than everybody else. As an airshow pilot, you don't have that clear objective because you're not racing against somebody. You're not being judged against somebody. You're just being said, here's a, a stage, do what you want. Make you know? it look nice and land safely. Yeah, exactly, do, do something cool do what you want, as a matter of fact, not even something good, because nobody's going to come at you and say, hey, your act sucks, right? I mean, they're probably not going to hire you again, but they're not, <laughs> they're not going to say that. So they say, here's a stage, do what you want, be safe. And that's what we try to do. And what we want to do, and this is, this is very introspective, you know, each person has his own motivation. What, you, what, we, what we want to do is to give back what we received. We went to our shows, and we've been amazed, and... and we saw that, hey, if he can do it, maybe there's a chance in a million I can. And, and what the hell, you know? I mean, we're getting there. <laughs> Still on the way, but we are getting there. So, so it's the time for us to give it back because hopefully somebody's looking at me and I'm like, ah, if that scruffy looking kid can, you know, fix his own jet, maybe I can. And I hope that happens. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we are the Cloud Dancers um, aerobatic team. Uh, the website is thecloudancers.com. Facebook is the Cloud Dancers. Instagram is the Cloud Dancers. You can't miss it. <laughs> if it's red, if it's fast, it's us. So um, yeah, come, come check loud. it out. <laughs> and loud and loud indeed. Come check it out. And uh, the videos of the airships that we are about to do, hopefully weather permitting, will be uploaded there soon too. Do you have anybody else you wanna you wanna mention while you're on? Well, absolutely, absolutely. We have a, a network of of supporters which. Uh, uh, which are paramount to our operation because all of this is, is nice and fun, but uh, uh, but it has to have a purpose, and um, and these people share the same purpose and the same vision that we do. So Aviation FX is this company in California, which I spoke about, and um, and they build and modify airplanes. They do speed mods. They do a bunch of crazy things, um, and they were the first to support us. Um, there's uh, Aircraft Trust, which is uh, a company based in, uh, in Delaware, which does trust agreements. Us not being American, we can't own a November registered airplanes, and that is the legal way to do it. Um, and they have been phenomenal. They are based in Delaware, but they are German in modus operandi, so they are on, on the clock all the time. Um, and of course, uh, we have Avcom Headsets, uh, which, you know, it's uh, our most recent partner. and. Uh, uh, they believed in us even before seeing us fly and we're very grateful for that and right now that they saw us fly they're very happy they joined our family so a shout out to them too thank you thank you wonderful awesome.